deep, beautiful theology taught straight from the word of God should cause us to erupt in praise for God. Now, if theology isn't your thing, if these past few sermons have just left your head awash in words you've never heard before, bear with me, endeavor to understand the deep things of God and also take heart, the next book in our book by book plan through every book of the Bible is Proverbs. Probably the most practical book in the entire Bible. So if that's what you've been craving, that's coming up next. And if this deep theology stuff is all you care about, you're about to be frustrated with us because Proverbs is next. Here in Romans chapter 11, we see God's sovereignty to elect Israel and the beautiful news that everyone who call, calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We see these two things come into perfect harmony with the metaphor of Israel as the chosen vine and Gentile nations as the engrafted branches. And it erupts, it arrives at these fireworks of praise in the closing verses of chapter 11. And then I wanna give us a sneak peek at chapter 12, whose first word is therefore. And then what follows is a black diamond slope of just rapid fire practical application. Here we see beautiful words about how New Testament worship actually works. We see one of the clearest passages in the New Testament right alongside Philippians 1, uh, 9 through 11 on how to discern God's will for our lives. And then, then quite, quite appropriately, we get instructions for how we then apply our lives to this deep theology as the church, not just as individuals, we receive the word of God, not as a self-help book directed strictly towards us. Let's not be narcissistic Bible readers. Rather, we, as the people of God, individual members of the larger body of Christ at work in God's redemptive mission on the earth, receive God's word together. Let's look at Romans chapter 11, sneaking in chapter 12. And by the time we're done, for those of you who have just, I mean, the, the theology has been a bit heady. I have bit of an artistic illustration idea that I hope helps bring some clarity to the theological arc of God's sovereignty in election as presented in Romans chapters 8 through 11. Let's look at the text together. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Quoting 1 Kings, Paul writes, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they're gonna to try to take my life. But what was God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. In the same way then, there is also at the present time, a remnant chosen by grace. So quoting 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 10, 14, and 18, Paul is gonna build a case that goes through the first 10 verses, explaining how it is God's sovereign right to preserve some of his Israelite people to be faithful to himself as a chosen remnant, referred to as the elect, and to harden the remainder. And this has been consistent even back to the, the Psalms of David and the, the era of Elijah. This teaching once again gives the sovereignty of God on full display. And as we move through chapter 11, you're gonna see this metaphor of the chosen vine of Israel, the engrafted branches of the Gentiles give way to this form of Calvinism, which is called Amoraldianism, okay? And when we're, 
completed today, hopefully I'll be able to share with you where I fit soteriologically on the spectrum for those of you who care. Amaraldanism is a form of Calvinism that fits right here on our spectrum. Okay, this, this speaks to the power of election, something that takes place in God's sovereign right. And God chooses to elect those who he foreknew would believe in him. So you can see that it's similar to Molinism in a way, although these two thoughts, Molinism and Amoralianism, come from very different origins. So Romans chapter eight, sort of the home base for Molinism, chapter nine, Calvinism, chapter 10, Arminianism, chapter 11, Amoralianism. And I'll share with you where I live on that soteriological spectrum if it matters to you, but what a beautiful church we have wherein we can disagree on these matters and worship side by side, shoulder to shoulder with one another. Look at verse six. Now, if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. This is important. Your works of righteousness, your good deeds, your self-assigned extra credit assignments where you try to go the extra mile and earn more favor from God, these things rob your view of the graciousness of God. God is not in his saving work all right, in choosing to preserve a remnant from among the Israelites for himself, God is not giving someone a favor whom he owes. Rather, it's grace. And grace, by definition, by its nature, is something that is not deserved. When you receive grace from God, it is not God carrying out a transaction of virtue with his supposedly equal party. No, my legalistic friend, would you understand what your views have done to distort your perspective on the grace of God? If it were by works, then grace would cease to be grace. Now, some of you may have a Bible translation that has another sentence added here at verse six. Preaching is a, is a beautiful, difficult, and sometimes funny calling. I've been able to preach in several countries around the world. And one of those added skills they don't train you in in seminary is preaching through, a, through an interpreter, through a translator. You can always tell when you're saying something and the translator is saying something different. All right, over the years, I've been involved with church planting and speaking at conferences in parts of Brazil. All right, what's up? Igreja Madridista, Hayden Sal in Sao Paulo. I love you guys. You can always tell if you're in Brazil and you're preaching and you have a translator who hasn't had his coffee yet and you don't trust that what you're saying is coming through? Right, for example, God, would you breathe life into the valley of dry bones? Would we rise up and bring revival to Sao Paulo? And then your translator says, Deus, no dechos, trabalhadores, de fabrica de pão. Like, you can tell he didn't really say what you just said. And then likewise, you know, if you're preaching in Mexico and coming from the word and trying to proclaim the word of God out to people and you just very calmly just say the truth, like Jesus wept. And then your translator just lights up. Like you can tell that you've just been assigned a translator who really wants to preach. I think the latter is sort of the case when you look at Erasmus, the Catholic scribe who oversaw 
a team that brought about the King James version of the Bible when they get to verse six here. Sometimes the King James and the new King James following Erasmus, the Catholic scribe's direction and oversight, who answered to a larger council himself, would add these beautiful flourishes to the text that were not in the Textus Receptus. Now, at the very best, these amount to commentaries. I mean, the, the addendum that you see in your King James Bible or your New King James Bible is theologically true. However, while still affirming the King James Version and still affirming the New King James Version, I must call this an error on the grounds of Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, that it assumes insufficiency on the part of the Holy Spirit to rightly inspire the word of God. Nonetheless, once more though, I still affirm these translations, grew up under them and have much of them memorized because my parents taught me with these translations. I wanted to give clarity for those of you who are using a new King James or a King James and you see an extra sentence in verse six. This is not in the original Greek. That's why it's provided either as a footnote or in italics or brackets in some other translations. Let's continue in the text. Look at verse seven. What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened. It's a tough truth, right? But that's God's sovereign right to do exactly that. This word elect, you're gonna see this in the opening of 1 Peter as well. It refers to saved Jews, Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So when Peter wrote to the saved Jews among Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and Asia, he refers to them as the elect in the opening of 1 Peter. Likewise here, we're talking about the chosen remnant from among Israel who is still faithful to God. These are referred to as the elect and then the rest of Israel who still defied God, they were hardened. Now we saw this in Romans chapter nine. It is God's sovereign right to harden whom you will harden. This is what God does. And we see now he's gonna give us examples from Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29 and, and Psalm 69 about God having done this in the past. Listen to this. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent continually. It's God's sovereign right to do this, to choose some from Israel to remain faithful to him as his remnant and then to harden the remainder. Interestingly, in the Psalm 69 quote that is provided in verse, verses nine and 10, in the original Psalm, the verse that comes immediately before this is a prophecy about Jesus on the cross being given vinegar to drink. Look at what beautiful work God brings about through the hardening of some hearts, the fulfillment of his prophecy, so that exactly even what was prophesied for Jesus, the savior to drink on the cross was given to him. We see Psalm 69 also in the gospels in a beautiful fulfillment with Jesus on the cross. Every time God does sovereignly harden some hearts, like in the case of Pharaoh, like in the case of the people giving the drink to Jesus on the cross, like in the case here of the, the, the members of Israel who would forsake God, ultimately the result is always God's glory. Now, God is not at all done with his chosen nation of Israel. See the very next verse. I ask them, have they stumbled so as to fall? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? 
Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, if the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now on May 3rd, our Explore the Bible curriculum, which we use across our our small groups uh, from student ministry through adult ministry, covered verses 17 through 32 already. And here you see this metaphor of Israel as the chosen vine and Gentile nations as the engrafted branches. This metaphor carries us to these closing, beautiful words of praise in verse, in verse 33. Look at this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Man, after seeing God's foreknowledge in Romans chapter eight, God's sovereignty in Romans chapter nine, the beautiful freedom for others from all nations to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved in Romans chapter 10, how God has sovereignly elected Israel to bring about salvation for the Gentiles in Romans chapter 11, we see all the culmination of all the deepest theology in the whole Bible erupt in praise. I've got, to, I've got to look at the very first word that Paul wrote. It's just, look at verse 33. It's just the word O. And it fascinates me because the word O doesn't really have a meaning in its own right. Rather, you could see perhaps the humanness of the divinely inspired author come through. Like he just has to stagger back for a second. Oh, and, and, it, and what follows is this outpouring of awe-filled and glory-engulfed praise. Oh, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his ways. Again, again, this is humbling. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Let me reiterate once more the beautiful teaching of humility that comes with a deep theological understanding. All right, young theologian who's just now been taught about the doctrines of grace from Romans chapter nine, who's just now understood about how God's sovereignty works, who's just now seen the beautiful motivation that we have to spend the one life each of us has reaching as many people for the gospel as we possibly can because every one of them who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved, having seen now answers to deep questions like what happens to people who live their whole lives without the gospel. See last week's sermon. Once we see what these you know, traditional historical church terms mean like Calvinism and Amoralianism and Molinism and Arminianism and, and synergism and monergism like, and open theism and determinism and fatalism and hyper-Calvinism. Like once we understand these terms, these are just words we ascribe to biblical ideas that we observe and experience in our walk with Christ. And once we have beheld Romans, the only proper response is humility. We've just gotten, like Isaiah in chapter six, a glimpse into the throne room of God. 
May our response be, woe to me because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. May we, like the tax collector in Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18, verse 13, just stand at a distance and strike our chest and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. May your increased knowledge, having beheld the glory of God theologically in Romans chapters eight through 11, result in humility, in your own heart and praise that erupts out to God. That's exactly what happened to the original earthly author, Paul, as he just stepped back in, in utter just glory engulfed awe of what the Holy Spirit had just inspired through him. So we likewise ought to just give glory to God, beholding his majestic sovereignty as so immaculately penned here in these words. And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? My legalist friend, my Mormon friend, who has ever given anything to God that God should repay him? Let's be humble in light of this glorious, soaring doxology. For from him are all things. He is the creator. Through him are all things. He is the sovereign. To him are all things. He is the omega. He already sits in victory over everything that assails us. If we, any nanosecond, ascribe to ourselves one iota of the glory for our own salvation, a salvation, we indicate an utter lack of understanding of the book of Romans. We have failed to teach Romans properly if you walk away getting any of the glory, even a royalties contract with a 0.01% cut of the glory that goes to God going to you. No, to him alone, through him alone, from him alone are all things. He alone gets the glory here. It is literally the same exact ambition that turned Lucifer into Satan that would say, I want a little bit of the glory that's being given to the most high. To him, through him, and from him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. Now, I just wanna survey the opening words, uh, words that, that will connect us to some of what we're gonna cover in and explore the Bible that connect us from, from, the, uh, from where, we, where we will see in, in, in session 12 on, on May 17th of Explore the Bible. I wanna give us a running start to try to connect there. Listen to, listen to, to Romans chapter 12. Therefore, Brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Incredible, incredible. It immediately begins in praise. Do you remember what Jesus taught the woman at the well in John chapter four? She was a Samaritan. And there was this debate because the Samaritans were using an old altar left there by Abraham. And they shared a genealogy and they had a dispute with the Jews who worshiped in Jerusalem. And Jesus, Jesus breaks the tie. I mean, truth be told, the Jews were worshiping in more accordance with what God had inspired, but Jesus, Jesus disrupts both of their ideas and says, There's a day is coming and has now come when we're not gonna worship God the Father in Jerusalem or here on this mountain, meaning not Jerusalem nor Samaria, but true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth because God is spirit. These are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Aren't you grateful that worship is now spiritual in nature and no longer ceremonial, no longer physical? Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves. He urges us, urges us to present our bodies, our bodies as a living sacrifice. The word living is operative here. 
Because every sacrificial lamb that was offered in Old Testament worship, back when worship was ceremonial and physical and symbolic in nature, they all died. We, however, we are now offering our bodies as sacrifices, but here's the good news, living sacrifices. Think about that for a minute. Now in the new covenant, we are the offering, offering ourselves, and we get to survive worship, which is nice. (laughs) But doesn't this also change the perspective on the modern American Christian's view of like what worship is? When you when you think about our debates regarding musical style and worship, instrumentation and worship through this text, they just sound so pathetic. There's there's not a single instruction here about instrumentation. There's not a single word here about musical styling whatsoever at all. So what should we do? I mean, if we were to go back to the original intent and sing worship songs in the style that David made music back in the days when he authored some of the Psalms, for example, it would sound like a really stripped down version of the soundtrack to Fiddler on the Roof. I mean, personally, this is a genuine confession, okay? Like I could worship to music that is played through banjo with like, you know, mud pie accompaniment. It doesn't matter to me. So at Highlands Community Church, We just make the most beautiful music that we possibly can that aligns with our mission to help people find and follow Jesus. And that's why we choose the majority of our services to present modern worship music that draws upon and helps appeal to the people who are far from God. Now, we also offer an 8 a.m. traditional service when we're back in our normal schedule. And I want want to explain exactly why this is. All right, those of you who attend the 8 a.m. service who prefer the lower volume and that style of music, this is to accommodate your preferences, but please don't mistake it for a theological truth because when we complain that worship didn't do anything for us or worship didn't meet our preferences or our tastes, or we walk away dissatisfied with worship, we are exhibiting a complete misunderstanding of what worship is. If you're not pleased with worship, you need to completely run a paradigmatic shift in your definition of worship because we're not worshiping you. You are the sacrifice, remember? The sacrifice, the lamb being tied to the altar, doesn't get to critique how the wood is arranged on the altar. Sacrifice yourself. We are worshiping God, not one another. So this is, this is where worship really comes from. It is in spirit. It is in truth. This is the kind of worship that the Father seeks. So we offer our bodies as living sacrifices and a true spiritual act of worship now in view of God's mercy, having transitioned from the old covenant to the new, but it's part of the beautiful thesis of the whole book of Romans. This is also, it, this immediately takes us to how we can determine God's will for our lives. Look at verse two. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Straight from worship in verse one to determining God's will in verse two. I told you chapter 12 is rapid fire, practical. This says something. In our daily lives, the enemy will try to drown out the glory of God and the truth of worship with a million little lies that just accumulate and stack upon our hearts He'll say like traffic, this is all there is. 
cancer. This is all there is. Coronavirus. This is all that there is. Your financial hardships. This is all that there is. Your marital troubles. This is all that there is. Your depression. This is all that there is. But when we, in a spiritual act of worship, sacrifice ourselves as living offerings out to God, we lift our hands out to the one who is unseen and the Holy Spirit of God would take us by the hand to lift us up through the demon cloud where we can see the sunrise there in the presence of God. We are better at to what is true because we can see the truth himself, Jesus, more clearly. I'm not talking about emotionalism. I'm talking about worship, where in that anointed state, you can better test and approve God's will for your life. This is why as a staff, we have staff chapel and we worship together before breaking out into our meetings to administer the different ministries of Highlands Community Church. Because there in that anointed state, all right, the lies, they just diminish and we're reminded of the glory and the grace of God. The things of this earth, they just grow strangely dim in light of his glory and his grace. There in that state, we remember what is truest and we can better determine God's good and pleasing and perfect will. This speaks to discernment, doesn't it? Don't be conformed to this age. I mean, if you're worshiping in the spirit and in truth, you're already not conforming to the pattern of this world where we worship self, right? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may, what is that word? Discern what is best. This is consistent likewise with what we see in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Very first sermon I ever preached for Highlands Community Church. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best, may be pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness to the glory and praise of God. There it is again. I see, especially college age Christians, resort to some bizarre form of like Christian divination. It's like, it's like Christian mysticism where we're asking God for signs and wonders and, and, and we're asking God to show us exactly his will when he's already revealed his will to us. All right, this is his revealed will. We have his spirit in us. His word is sufficient for us. And so we may then discern what is best in a worshipful state. This means that you don't have to cast lots like the disciples did to find Matthias. You don't have to lay out a fleece, for example. You don't have to do these things. You can discern what is best in a worshipful state. That means that the absolute best time to determine God's will for your life is while you are worshiping with your church, with, with Highlands Community Church. And the absolute worst time to try to discern God's will for your life is while you are abiding unrepentantly in sin, flagrantly doing what you know is against God's design. What is the best time to discern God's will? while you are offering your body as a living sacrifice, not conforming to the pattern of this world, but being transformed to the very renewal of your mind. This way you may be able to test and approve. What does it mean, by the way, to test and approve, to discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God? How do we discern? We try things. We keep in step with the spirit. You take a step forward and you try. And you can test and approve to know, to discern what is best. It's actually highly practical and it actually puts a lot of weight on us. I think it calls for a beautiful demonstration of faith. It doesn't guarantee certainty, but it does promise discernment. 
Let's continue in the text because now he's gonna give these instructions for how we apply all of this as the church. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching in teaching, if exhorting in exhortation, giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. We could see him jump straight to instructions for how we apply these truths as the church of God. I'm grateful for like the life application study Bible, for example, but I think it sometimes gives us a narcissistic bent on how we live the Christian life. There are far too few instructions for how we apply scripture in the context of the body of believers. This was not an individual letter that was written just to you. Do not be a solipsist. Rather, we are the body of Christ. All right, my spiritual gifts may make me look like a hand. Your spiritual gifts may make you look like an arm, but together... We are part of the same body and this is God's mission to reach everyone who will call upon him. And there is no backup plan. We are the ones who have been given the great commission. And you remember what we talked about last week? How will that person who's not heard the gospel here unless you preach? So he, we at Highlands Community Church want to send you out. This is beautiful instruction straight from worship to discerning God's will to instructions for the church. And that just gives you a glimpse as to what the rest of the book of Romans is going to be like. This book is absolutely amazing. Here is what I will refer to as stubborn Jesse's soteriology, which like his skinny jeans, doesn't fit anywhere or Campbellism for short. <laughs> Fits somewhere between Molinism and Arminianism. I believe that the doctrine of election is 100% true of the disciples, of corporately the nation of Israel, of Saul of Tarsus himself. I believe even in the hardening of the Antichrist, for example, that even double predestination itself will be true of the Antichrist. I see beautiful hope and the foreknowledge of God so that ultimately in all things, God is sovereign. That God would permit evil, but ultimately work all things together for his good, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is where I stand. Wherever you choose to plant your flag, I wanna make sure that you do so with a full holistic knowledge of the message of Romans chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. And to this point, I have an idea to help try to explain where you fit in God's redemptive plan from Romans chapters 8 through 11. All of history is indeed his story from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. All of history is his story and this, this is you. All of history began the seven days of creation. On the first day, the sovereign God spoke out to nothing. And he said, let there be light. He said, let there be a chasm between the waters, separate the waters beneath from the waters above. He said, let dry ground appear and let it bear forth vegetation. You've, you've always seen, isn't this amazing? Like literally the best food you could possibly eat just springs up for free out of the ground, like everywhere. The 
tailor-made nature of our earth has always, always nagged at you as a proof for God's existence. You know that an earth like ours couldn't create itself. You know that life could not create itself, but our earth was tailor-made for us. But let's be brutally honest. My skeptical friend, you've been suppressing that truth so that you feel like you can get away with sin, but no more, not anymore, not today. No more suppressing the truth to get away with wickedness. God created lights in the sky to separate the night from the dark. He said, let the waters swarm with life. He said, let there be wildlife. And on the sixth day, God created man in his own image, male and female, he created us. And this is how the human species survives. And then on the seventh day, God rested. The bottom line of Romans chapters eight through 11 is that God is sovereign, which means that God is in control. Romans chapter eight, God has perfect foreknowledge. He foreknows all who would believe in him and he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son so that those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified, meaning he takes us to heaven when we die. In Romans chapter nine, God sovereignly chose the descendants of Jacob over the descendants of his older twin brother Esau. Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the bottom line in all of this, Romans chapter 11, that God is sovereign. To prove this sovereignty, God made a promise to Abraham to bring about a great nation through him so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. This was the nation of Israel. Israel is divided into 12 tribes named for the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Listed in Deuteronomy, just as they appear in Genesis, the sons of Jacob are... Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Gad, Naphtali, Asher, Dan, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. These are the 12 chosen of Israel. But not all who are descended from the chosen 12 of Israel are Israel. See our sermon on Romans chapter 9. After Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000 in Jewish territory in Mark chapter six, verses 30 through 43, when his disciples had finished feeding everybody, there were 12 baskets left over. Salvation is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. The word Gentile refers to the seven Gentile nations, which in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 and 2, in Acts 13, 19, are the Hethites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. After Jesus miraculously fed the 4,000 in Mark chapter 8, verse 1 through 10, in Gentile territory, though they started with seven fish, they had seven baskets left over. Salvation is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Jesus performed these miraculous feedings through his chosen 12 disciples. The chosen 12 disciples were Thomas, Simon the Zealot, Philip, Simon Peter, Matthias, who replaced Judas, Matthew, Jude, John, James, son of Alphaeus, James, son of Zebedee, and then Bartholomew and Andrew. According to John 15, 19, the 12 didn't choose Jesus, but Jesus chose the 12. The number 12 was so important to them that after Judas committed suicide, they chose Matthias by the casting of lots just so they would still represent the 12 tribes of Israel. There'd still be 12 apostles, 12 disciples. The 12 chosen disciples also sent out seven preachers of the word to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. They were Stephen, the first martyr of the New Testament, Philip, who introduced the gospel to Ethiopia, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas of Antioch. 
we see Jesus pray for both his chosen disciples, whom he refers to as the ones that God gave him, and not only for them, but also in John 17, verse 20, he prays not only for them, but also for everyone who would believe in him because of their message. I, for one, am incredibly grateful that God sovereignly elected the 12 because it was by John and his gospel and his message that on April 16th, 1991, when I was six years old, I heard and believed. I'm so incredibly grateful for the gospel of John because my pastor brought it to me after the Easter musical and showed me God so loved the world that whoever believes in him would not die, but have everlasting life. That's John 3, 16. Taught me Romans. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23, and the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If God is drawing upon your heart, I'm gonna give you the opportunity to pray and give your life to Jesus Christ today. But as we continue through the teaching of the sovereignty of God, electing the 12, sending out the seven we arrive at chapter 11 of the book of Romans. You can see that God has sovereignly chosen Israel, whom he likens to this chosen vine. And he likens the Gentile nations to these engrafted branches. There are always seven of them, it seems, these engrafted branches from the seven lampstands representing seven churches at seven Gentile cities listed in Revelation chapters two and three to likewise, even the 12 solid pearl gates where the walls are 12,000 stadia in length at each side with a foundation that is 12 layers thick and the wall around it where the 12,000 where the 12 tribes of Israel will be called from the 12 to the seven. All of it is brought to completion where God is sovereign through the sovereign election of Israel and the engrafting of the Gentile branches. Romans 11, Israel is the chosen vine. Romans 11, Gentiles are the engrafted branches. And all of this is a plan that calls us heavenward. Do you sense this heavenward calling of Christ? You might ask the question, yeah, but Jesse, wait a minute. There are only six branches on your chosen vine there. Yeah, and this is where you come in. Now this this is where you come in. God has been calling his people heavenward from beginning to end, from creation to glorification, from Genesis to Revelation, all of redemptive history, the election of Israel, the calling of the seven has all been about Jesus. And today, if you call upon the name of Jesus, then you will be saved. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him 
are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. For from Jesus and through Jesus and to Jesus are all things. To Him be the glory forever and forever. Amen. Would you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus right now? How do you apply your life to this text? You believe in Jesus right here and now. Pray with me. Give your life to Jesus. Welcome into His plan all along. God, I believe, John 3, 16, I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. I confess, Romans 3, 23, I confess that I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess, Romans 6, 23, that the wages of my sin is death. God have mercy on me, a sinner, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus, I believe John 14, 6. I believe you, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no way I can come to God the Father except through Jesus. So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Would you say Jesus is Lord right now? Just say it. Jesus is Lord. God, I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Saved. Let me be saved in Jesus' name. Amen.